Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Today in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy will begin our study of Chapter 2. Let's read Romans Chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself. For thou that judgest doeth the same thing. But we are sure that the judgment of God is according to truth against them which commit such things. And thinkest thou this, O man, that judgest them which do such things, and doest the same, that thou shalt escape the judgment of God? Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, Treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but unto them that are contentious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish unto every soul of men that doeth evil of the Jew first and also of the Gentiles but glory honor and peace to every man that worketh good to the Jew first and also to the Gentile for there is no respect of persons with God let's pray father we thank you for everything that has preceded your word this morning We thank you for the time of prayer. We also thank thee for the time of giving to you, which is an act of worship. We thank you, Lord, for the songs that were sung. And we just want to ask you this morning to be with us as we delve into your word. Lord, we have no other instrument to sustain us in this time where truth is being completely dismantled. Uh, Where men are trying to elevate human ideas above your word. We are in a truth war. The sad fact is that many people do not recognize it. Believers are prone to believe the experts as opposed to accepting the clear teachings of scripture. There's a battle lines that are being drawn. And we as your servants have got the awesome responsibility of presenting to your people the teaching of your word. Help us to be faithful. Help us not to be intimidated or to become in any way subject to human fear. But help us to declare the word of God in all of his fullness, in all of his glory. We thank you for those who are here this morning. And it's our belief that they've come 
Not to hear the words of men, but to hear what the scripture says. Perhaps someone is trying to decide what they're going to do with their lives. They've pretty much run up to a cul-de-sac, a block. They've gone so far, they've lived their own lives, gone their own ways. And they really realize that it really doesn't make any sense. That life has no meaning without purpose. And we cannot find purpose until we find the God of the Bible. It is then we understand why we're here. It is then we understand the situation in the world. It is then we understand the only hope, the rescue plan that God has of his own self initiated. That the sovereign God seeing man in his folly, in his sin, in his degradation, in his depravity, in his wandering and his lostness, that this sovereign God gave his son. To redeem us, to forgive us, and Lord, to bring us back to the God of heaven. There's no more glorious message than this. But the church doesn't believe that any longer. It believes the politicians can solve the problems. And it believes the psychologists and the sociologists and the experts are the ones that will solve the problem. And what utter folly it is that we have fallen for the trap. Help us, O Lord. To regain our faith in your word and confidence in your truth. And be willing to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord. Though the world cries us down and mocks us and laughs at us. Yet we can be absolutely sure of victory in all of its finality. So help us as your people. Bless this time we have and accomplish your purpose this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. This morning, I want us to recommence where we left off in our study of the book of Romans. And uh, I want to pick up in chapter 2 because I've completed chapter 1. Now, some of you might have thought that the pastor got stuck in chapter (laughs) 1. I don't know if you're aware or not, but we spent 24 messages on chapter 1. Okay. But I would like to add to you, to say to you, that I think chapter 1 is a very pregnant chapter. It's one of those chapters that is so rich that you had to spend a lot of time quickly analyzing what Paul was saying and then thinking carefully through his thoughts because Paul is executing a forensic case against the Gentile world and he wants to prove that the whole Gentile world is guilty before God. So I think it was important for us to spend some time on that chapter. I want to remind you that there are three basic things that Paul Uh, does in chapter 1. Chapter 1, the Apostle Paul establishes the moral guilt of the Gentile world. And Paul is saying to the Gentile world, because people always ask the question, Pastor, what about those who haven't heard the gospel? What about the man who has never heard Christ? Where is he going? What's going to happen to him? Well, Paul tells you that the man who has never heard the gospel preached is without excuse. And Paul's whole argument is this, that man is morally guilty before God because of two salient facts. Number one, God has revealed himself in the created order. Whether you be a heathen or a pygmy or an enlightened person here this morning, when you look at what is, you know that something great created all of this. You can't deny that. But then the apostle Paul argues that man also knows right from wrong. 
God has implanted in man a conscience that tells man. And when a man does wrong, a red light goes on. Stop! He doesn't have to be taught right from wrong. So man is guilty before God. Morally guilty before. Listen, the problem with man is not moral, nor is it metaphysical. See? It's not mental, nor is it metaphysical. It's a moral issue. Man is morally guilty before God. And by the way, because man is morally guilty for God, before God, there is a solution to the human problem. If you don't understand the moral guilt of man, you can never solve the human problem or offer hope. And the gospel comes in at that. And then the second thing it does is that the apostle Paul vindicates the judicial judgment of God against the Gentile world. And Paul says that God gave up the Gentile world. And three different times in chapter 1, we're told that God gave them up. And what did God give them up to? God gave them up, first of all, to what is called their lusts. They wanted to have sex. And they didn't want any God telling them you can't have sex. See? Who is God to tell me I, sex belongs, this is my body, I can do with my body what I want to do. So these cravings, these depraved longings. And God said, that's what you want? So God gave them up to what is called the lust. Granted their wish. Now this had to do with illicit heterosexual sexual activity. But then they wanted to go further. So what did God do? God gave them over to what is called vile affections. A fascinating word, by the way. But it means to degrading passions. So that they no longer wanted to pursue illicit heterosexual. But they wanted to go further. They wanted greater sensation. They wanted what they might call exotic sex. They wanted something more erotic. So they went from the natural use of the woman to the pursuit of the use of the man. So what God has done is God said, you want to go further than that? Okay, go ahead. And so God gave them over to these vile affections. So anytime you see homosexuality or lesbianism or any of these aberrant sexual acts becoming prominent in society, that's a society that God has taken his hand off. And God, that's what you want? Okay, go ahead. See, that's what it is. And then the third thing that Paul said, that God gave them over to what is called a reprobate mind. You know what a reprobate mind is? A reprobate mind is a, a mind that is devoid of all moral judgment. It no longer knows right from wrong. It calls right wrong and wrong right. It calls light darkness and darkness light. Total moral confusion. Is that not where we are? Was there anyone that would stand up boldly and tell me that's not where we are today? That's exactly where we are. And things that are happening, one cannot fathom. That intellectual, smart, enlightened people, doctors, lawyers, and, and, and all the rest, who ought to know better, have fallen for the trap that these things are normal and natural. So then, then, then Paul says, uh, third thing that Paul does in this uh, chapter 1 is that he lifts up a declaration of hope in the form of the gospel. He said... I'm not ashamed of what? The gospel of Christ. Why? It's the power of God. It's fascinating that in this one chapter, Paul tells us several things about this gospel. Number one, he calls it the gospel of God. 
God is the source of this gospel. Man does not originate the conception of a rescue plan. God is the one that in the eternal council of the Trinity decided how we would rescue man. It is God's plan. That is why it's called the gospel of God. It's not a human gospel. Secondly, it's a gospel about his son. It tells us that the focus and center and the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. I want to say this morning, and I make no apologies for it. There is no hope in Islam. There is no hope in Hinduism. There's no hope in Taoism. There's no hope. You, you just, there is no hope outside of Christ. If a man does not come to Christ and yield to Christ and bow to Christ, that man is completely hopeless. I don't care what religion he belongs to. It's the gospel not only of God, but the gospel of Christ. He is at the heart and the center of it. Then the third thing that Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God. What Paul is talking about is the efficiency of the gospel and the sufficiency of the gospel. It's the power. And by the way, that power has been demonstrated in the lives of all of you sitting here. And I hope you can say that. Look, there's a time I wish sometimes I could let people tell their lies, but I would have to shut them up. Because if I, now I have never committed fornication before I was a Christian. Never committed after I was a Christian. But if I were to tell you my life, even though I didn't do that, you would say, Pastor, stop, please. Because it's not just the act. It's the thoughts. It's the ideas. Your thinking, your motive. Man, listen, when you begin to... That is why the more you get closer to God, the more rotten you feel about yourself. I don't know if you know that. Because you begin to see the real you. The real you is very ugly, you know. Really, really ugly. So that's why Paul says there's a power, a transforming power, he calls it, the power of the gospel. And then the other thing that Paul points out in chapter 1 is the gospel is a universal gospel. To the Jew first and also to what? The Greeks. It embraces all men, all women, all tribes, all nations, all races. It's a universal gospel. And then Paul talks about it's a gospel of faith. It's not a matter of works. Nothing you can do. Listen, God has already worked out the plan. And God presents the plan to you. And listen, you either accept it or you reject it. But there's no other plan. And so Paul reminds us it's the gospel of faith. What faith is, faith is the hand that takes all of what God has provided and embraces it. That's all you do. That's the only way you get saved. By faith. So Paul calls it the righteousness of faith to faith. It, it, it is something that God has created that a person receives by faith and it appeals to faith. Having done that, by the time Paul has finished chapter number one, there's only one verdict that we come to. He says in verse 9, they are without what? Excuse. Now that's the background and the setting to chapter Number two. And that there should be no doubt that there's a connection between chapter two and chapter one. The Apostle Paul has given us a key word in verse number one. Notice what he says. This is the word? Therefore. In other words, he wants you to know that everything I'm going to say in chapter two is related to chapter one. 
I'm saying what I'm saying in chapter 2 because of all I've said in chapter number 1. He uses the word therefore. So there's a direct correlation, a direct relationship between the two. And here's what is happening. While Paul is executing this forensic case against the Gentile world and spelling out about the terrible situation of the Gentile world, Paul imagines a Jew saying, You're right, Paul! You're right! I agree with you! Gentile is not worse than anything! God's judgment is on them. They're down. And then Paul said, now wait a minute. You didn't understand what I was saying. You really didn't understand what I was saying. You think you understand what I'm saying. And that is why he begins this verse. Because it is my, he's seen the Gentiles jumping up and saying, you're right man. These Gentiles, we knew about them long before. Look at their lifestyle. And then Paul said, who are you to judge? And he's going to bring out the case where he shows that the Jews is even worse. Than the Gentiles. And his case boils down to this. While the Gentiles had creation and had conscience. The Jews had far more than that. What did they have? They had the law. They had the prophets. They had the covenants. They had the mark of circumcision. They had all of these things. But yeah, what happened? They said, they said the very things the Gentiles were doing that they condemned. They were turning on doing the same thing. So the Apostle Paul is saying to that man who is elated and jumping up with glee because of all the negative things Paul has said about the Gentiles. Paul is saying to that man, just wait a minute. Wait a minute. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man, whosoever thou art that judgest, for wherein thou judgest another, thou condemnest thyself, for thou that judgest doest what? The same thing. I want to point out three simple things from this text this morning. Number one, who's this man that pontificates and judges like, like that Paul talks about here? Number two, why does this person think they have a right to condemn the Gentiles? There must be a reason. And then number three, what really is the basis of this arrogant attitude of condemnation? What is it? Why does the Jew feel that he has this prerogative to be so condemnatory of the Gentile world? And I want to say that the theme of the topic is this. They had a sense of false security. False security. And I hope to show you very clearly that this is at the root of the problem. You see, because the Jews thought they were in the kingdom... And everybody outside was out. They looked down at their noses and felt they could condemn the Gentiles. But it was based on a false security. And we'll talk about what they built their security on that made them feel so safe that they can pontificate on the condemnation of the Gentiles. We'll deal with that uh, shortly. So let's look at these three things this morning. First of all, the first issue we've got to deal with is the issue of identity. Therefore, thou art inexcusable, O man. Who is Paul addressing in this particular verse? And who is he uh, trying to deal with? Who is throwing in his towel with the Apostle Paul and giving his carte blanche approval of what Paul has said about the Gentiles so that he himself is condemning the Gentile world? Who is this man that says, Paul, you're right. Gentiles not worth much. They're full of evil, evil and vulgarity. They are corrupt. They're degraded. Who is this one that stands up and condemns the Gentile? 
Well, if you read the commentaries on the book of Romans, you'll find that it's normally divided into two schools as far as who this person is Paul is addressing. One school claimed that the Apostle Paul is obviously dealing with the Gentiles. He's continuing his ideas now with the Gentiles. So he's, what is in chapter 2 overflows from chapter uh, 1, and Paul is dealing with the same group. You're dealing, and he said the reason why the people that Paul is dealing with here... Uh, who is saying that the Gentiles are guilty of these heinous, horrible crimes and who endorse and approve of what Paul has been saying. They said that Paul is here talking about the, the moral pagan. And by the way, they are moral pagans. They are pagans who are very philosophic, very intellectual. As a matter of fact, it may fascinate some of you if you ever did a, a crash course in philosophy. That some of these pagans actually uh, pleaded and exhorted people in their day to live the good life. To lead the life of debauchery and try to live an upright life. So it is true in a sense that they are moral pagans. But I believe the Apostle Paul in this chapter has left the Gentiles in chapter 1 and now he's going to bring his case against the Jews. He's already closed his case in chapter 1 against the Gentile world, but now he's going to pick up the Jews. So I don't think that Paul, it's not about these moral pagans, these philosophical pagans. His second school of thought is that Paul is taking the case with the Jews and their attitude towards the Gentile world. Now, we may not be able to finally settle conclusively this matter. It's a matter of interpretation, a matter of opinion. But it seems to me there are two reasons why I believe that Paul is here talking to the Jew. The man that is saying, you're right, Paul, I agree with you. Condemn the Gentiles. You know, I agree with you because I condemn them too. See, that man is none other, I believe, than a Jew. I'll tell you why. The word that Paul uses there, thou that judges another. The emphasis and the idea of judgment and condemnation, it was the greatest characteristic of the Jews. In New Testament times, they always looked down on the Gentiles as dogs. That the Gentile world was a world that was totally outside the pale of God's mercy. There the Jews were in, everybody else was out. And because of that, they had this tendency to look down on the Gentiles and uh, push their nose and they're snobbing the Gentiles. So that's what they're looking at. This is the man that is judging. He believes as a Jew, he has a right to judge. After all, he's got God on his side, he's got the law, he's got the prophets. He has now become... The chief judge, as far as he is concerned. And so, uh, this tendency, uh, in this, I think that word judge is a very clear indication that Paul has a reference to the Jew. By the way, if you go through the, the Gospels and you move into even some of the epistles, you'll find that many, many times Paul has to address what you call the Judaizers, the legalists, the moralists. The ones uh, who really had this upper class opinion of themselves that they were in a, in a class by themselves and they were the untouchables. Everybody else were in a, a terrible predicament. And if you find, you find in the Gospels and the book of Acts and the various epistles that all of the evangelists, whether our Lord or the, the, uh, the, the apostles in their ministries, they came up against this moral legalistic attitude. That we are better than you. We don't need this gospel. We are already in the kingdom of God. What gospel do we need? We belong to Abraham's seed. 
so I believe, and then again, the, the judgment was always the Gentiles, etc. There's a second reason, by the way, not only the word uh, judgment, but if you go down through the chapter, you'll notice that he makes reference to the Jews several times. Look at verse number 9. He said, tribulation and anguish upon every soul that doeth evil. And then he said, what? <laughs> the Jew first. <laughs> yeah. They say, yes, Paul. Paul said, no, you first. You first. See? And then look at verse uh, number 17. Behold, thou callest thyself a Jew and restest in law and makest thy boast in God and knowest his will and proveth the things that are more excellent being uh, instructed in the law. And are confident that thou thyself are guide to the blind, a light to them which are in darkness, and instructor of the foolish, teacher of babes. What the Apostle Paul is saying, you have a self-elevated opinion of yourself. So he's dealing here with the Jews. And then look at verse number 22. He says, thou that says a man should not commit adultery, dost thou commit adultery? Thou that abhorrest idols, dost thou commit sacrilege? Thou that makest thy boast in the law, does thou break the law, uh, dishonest the law. You cannot read that. We don't understand that Paul is bringing the case against the Jews. He's turning the tables on the Jews. So this man that we're dealing with here in this chapter is a man who has listened to what Paul has said in chapter number one. But he is so prejudiced in his mind and so biased in his thinking that they say it only relates to the Gentiles. It has nothing to do with us Jews. And Paul has to deal with that. So he said to that person, you know, you're rejoicing. But they're going to bring you down to earth. See? To you first. See? To you first. Now that brings me to the second question. Why is this man so, this uh, Jewish man so audacious, this person, to think that, because of Jewish arrogance, he has the right to so callously condemn the Gentiles. And the answer is twofold. Let me just give it to you quickly. The Jews felt that they did not need this gospel because they were already God's chosen people. Uh, and by the way, that was the problem of preaching the gospel. Whether it was our Lord or the other apostles, that was the problem. We are already God's chosen people. So why you come preaching repent the kingdom of God is at hand? Why are you telling us we must come in to the kingdom of God? We are in the kingdom already. Now if you feel that way, you develop a level of a false security. People who have a false security are some of the most arrogant people. We're in. The Gentiles are out. Don't bring this gospel to me. So that's why you've got this audacity that you find in this chapter. Again, you don't have to take my word for it. But if you will go through the gospel and turn the pages and see the times our Lord confronted the Jews, you see that how the Jewish leaders again and again was always quarreling with him, was always debating with him, always trying to trip him up and to trap him. Always. You know why? Because they felt they were so secure. See? And so the Jews objected to the gospel. Because they felt that they were, or they were already saved because they were, were Jews. And then the second thing I would like to say to you is this. The Jews objected to the gospel because they believed that there was no gospel for the Gentiles. I don't know if you know this or not. 
But if you were to tell a Jew that the Gentiles are part of the kingdom of God and share the millennial kingdom with you, that is impossible. Totally impossible. God chose us among all who we are God. We belong to the kingdom. They will never come. As a matter of fact, the only destiny for the Gentiles was hell for the Jews. That's all. That arrogance was based on their sense of false security. There's a second reason for the Jews' audacity towards the Gentiles. And that had to do with the, the Jewish thinking with respect to God, which is based on a false understanding of the character of God. Let me explain what I mean by that. In their view, they felt that because they were Jews, they deserved special treatment. That somehow God wore Jewish spectacles. And God saw everything Jewish. See? So because I'm a Jew, it didn't matter how I lived, what I did, God just saw I was a Jew. And the Apostle Paul has to knock that argument down too. If you look at uh, verse number 11. He said, for there is no what? No respect of persons with God. But that's what the Jew believed. So not only did they believe that they were saved. They didn't need, but they also believed that somehow God was on their side. And that God was an impartial God. And it didn't matter how the Jews lived. Didn't matter. God closed his eyes to the Jews. They're my people. But God's eyes was open to the Gentiles. See, and saw all the evil. Again, the audacity that you find in this chapter has to do, and I'll show you that they had a false sense of security. And that brings me to the third problem then. What was the foundation of their cockiness and their arrogance? And their condemnatory attitude towards the Gentiles. Uh, let me begin to explain that for just a moment. Here was their problem. When the Apostle Paul laid out his forensic case against the Gentiles. The Jews thought that what Paul was doing. That God was condemning the Gentiles because they were Gentiles. That's what they thought. They saw no connection with the life the Gentiles were living, or the life that they were living, God was simply condemning the Gentiles because they were Gentiles. They missed the whole argument. And people who are cocky, people who have got a false sense of security, are people who only hear what they want to hear. You can read the entire chapter. And you can see that Paul is talking about the lifestyle of the Gentiles that God, but they can't see it. All they can see is, yes, he condemns the Gentiles because they are Gentiles. He didn't understand that God connected the judgment with the lifestyle. So that's why they felt so secure. The Apostle Paul wants to take off these layers of false security and to show the Jews that you're saying, you're judging the Gentiles, but Paul is going to show them, you know, the same thing you are condemning the Gentiles for, what is happening? You're practicing. See? So God doesn't condemn the Gentiles because they're Gentiles. God condemned the Gentiles because the Gentiles are living an evil life. And the same judgment that God put on the Gentiles will put on you too, you Jews too. Why? Because you too are living a godless life. 
They never saw that. Never saw that. Because the moment they saw, if they had seen that, they would put their hand to their mouth and say, Oh me. Oh me. Look at these Gentiles. But what about me? I got more truth than these Gentiles. I know more than these Gentiles. Oh me. If God judged the Gentile and they have so much light, look how much light I've got. My judgment is more. But they never saw that. They rather sat down in judgment adjudicating and saying, Paul, you're right. Your case is so tight, watertight, that there's only one conclusion that they're without excuse and they ought to be condemned. And I give my voice with you and I say to Paul, right, damn them, Lord, damn them. And Paul said, wait a minute, you didn't understand what I was saying. Now, there were two areas of, of blindness, as I pointed out to you. One is that they didn't understand the connection between God's judgment and the lifestyle. But also, the other problem I, I told you is that they felt so secure. But it was a false security. Now, here's a question. What were the Jews depending on? So that after reading the case that Paul presents... They have no compunction of conscience. They don't even understand that the Apostle Paul is showing the, the fact that God is a just, impartial God. And that God judges men according to their acts and their behavior and their lifestyle. What were they depending on? Three things very quickly. Number one, as I pointed out to you, if you go from verse number one to verse 16, Paul talks about they were depending upon the fact of the Jewishness. I'm Jew. I don't know if you noticed today, by the way, but... The vast majority of Jews are still not accept Christ as the Messiah. I think you know that. But if you ever see a picture of the Wailing Wall, you'll see them at the Wailing Wall praying for Messiah to come. Messiah already come. But they're praying for Messiah because they're blind. But if you were a Gentile with a boat at that wall and said the Messiah has come. Christ was your Messiah. You know, why do you keep praying for one who has already come? They want to know, who are you Gentile? To tell me that. Jewishness. The second thing they depended on. When you, when you run them. You deal with the argument. That it's not because a man is a Jew. He's secure. They run to the law. Verse 17 to verse 24. And they say to you. But wait a minute. We got the law. Who you got? Who you got? God gave us the law. We're special. And so. When Paul knocks down the case, that's not the Jewishness that will get you into the kingdom of God and make you right with God. They'll run to the law and say, we've got the law. But Paul will point out, you've got the law, but you don't obey the law. You see, there are people who think because they've got the Bible, they're okay. That's we got the Bible. But brother and sister, not having the Bible in your cubby hole, that you bring it on Sunday morning and leave it there the whole week, that's going to have anything on you, you know. My question to you is not, do you have the Bible, but do you follow the Bible? Do you obey the Bible? See? So, you, you, they can't argue about the Jewishness, though Paul knocked on the argument about the law. So what does you turn to? Well, there's only one other thing to do. We got circumcision. If you look at verse 25 to verse 29, you see that Paul deals with that. Look at him. He says, uh, for circumcision verily follow if you keep the law. 
But if thou breakest the law, the circumcision is made of uncircumcision. Therefore, if the uncircumcision keep the righteous of the law, shall not the uncircumcision be counted to be circumcision? So we got the mark of God in us. Every Jewish child at eight days, they took the knife and they cut off the, the and they threw it away. He got circumcised. So I am a circumcised. I am, that's the mark. I belong to the seed of Abraham. It is what I want to repeat. A false security. We're Jews. We've got the law. And we got the mark of God of circumcision. We're Abraham's seed. We're safe. The Apostle Paul has got to deal with that. And he wants to show them that that's not going to help you. And you have no right to be pontificating and putting your nose down at the Gentiles and saying, you know, yeah, I, I agree with you. Condemn the Gentiles. They ought to be condemned. Praise God they're going to be condemned. We Jews, we always knew we were special people. You know. Now I want to take all of that and apply it to ourselves. Because you're sitting out there, you're saying, that's right, that's right, Pastor. Hit them hard. Hit them hard, the Jews. But the question is, how does, what is Paul saying here, how does it apply to us in the 21st century world? How does it apply? And I want to talk to you on the matter that false security has five terrible results in blinding people. It blinds us in five ways. First of all, I would like to say that when a person has a sense of false security, <clears throat> it introduces a prejudice in our listening and our reading of the scriptures. I repeat, it introduces a prejudice in our listening and reading to the scriptures. And this is how it happens, by the way. We come to scripture, and we come to scripture full of our own preconceived ideas and our own particular nuance and prejudices that we have. We come to the Bible, we pick out what we like. And we come to the Bible, we notice what we want. We come to the Bible and we ignore anything that goes against the grain of our thinking. That was the Jew in this chapter. Paul has laid out a total forensic case that is, is completely foolproof. But how can any man read what Paul says in, in, in chapter number one and feels that he's okay? Brother, I read chapter number one and I'm saying, Oh no! Oh me! Oh me! And that's the problem when you have a false security, depending on things that you must not depend on. You, you, you develop this idea that you come to the Bible and what you read and what you hear, you only pick up what you want to hear. It's because of your bias in this particular, uh, particular passage. All of them heard and uh, read what Paul said about the wrath of God. And they said, Amen, Amen. You're right on target, Paul. But you know, they, they miss out one word. Because Paul said, the, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? Did you see all? The wrath of God, God is revealed against the unrighteousness and ungodliness of the Jews. That's how they read it. But see that little word, all? If they'd only got that little word on, it's revealed against all. 
They would never with their nose be looking down on the Gentiles and say, you're condemned. You see the prejudice? Once you have a false security depending on things that are totally unsupported by scripture, you will find in your life as a person that you seem to pick out what you want from the Bible. And that's the same problem that we have today. What I mean by that, we come in and we hear a sermon, but we only select what we want to hear. You know? we, we don't really, as a matter of fact, I will tell you this, most people don't come to church to hear what the pastor said they must do. They come to hear, did he make a grammatical mistake? You know, did he try to hit me? So they they, they, they they come in with a, and again, it's based on their false sense of security. I'm okay. I'm okay. Me and God, we are the best of friends. So I, I don't need to, to listen, and I can listen selectively. False security always introduces into a person's life that capacity to only hear and see what he wants to see and close his mind off to everything else. So when people come, and by the way, you can go to the scripture like this as well. People go to the scripture not to be enlightened, not to be taught, but to see if their theories are confirmed. See? That's the problem with the Calvinist and the Arminian. If a Calvinist is reading the Bible, all he can see is sovereignty and election. That's all he can see. He reads Genesis to Revelation, all he can see is sovereignty and election. Can't see nothing else. Every, every passage of scripture is interpreted against sovereignty and election. When the Armenian reads it, we always see, all he sees is human responsibility and choice. So that's all he sees. He can't see anything else. The problem is both wrong. See? Let the Bible speak. And let us subject ourselves to what the Bible speaks about. The Bible said God is sovereign and God is left. But the Bible says the man is responsible. We've got to make a choice. See? We preach both. See? We don't get into one little cubby hole and say that this is all the scripture says. No! It says the other side. It has two sides to it. Now, we can't see where those two sides converge, but we must preach it. Only God understands how these two things work together. But the problem is, when a person has a sense of false security, and that's the problem with the Calvinist, see? He thinks he's elected, and he thinks nobody has elected. He thinks he's a very special person. My problem with those people is this. How could you ever feel elected? And what about your children? They elected to? What about your daddy? He elected to? What about your mom? She elected to? What about your sister? She elected to? What about your best friend? He elected to? So you feel good you're going to heaven and they're damned? That doesn't affect you? See, when you put it on that basis, they never thought that far. And all the cockiness about where they are securely, then you begin to see it, it unravels because it puts you in a, a real moral dilemma. Is God a person that says to you, brother, you were born. Brother Nathan, there's nothing you can do. I damn you to hell. Nothing you can do, brother Nathan. You come into this world, and before you come into this world, I don't look down in the future and see what you're going to do. But I just damn you. I put damn on you. Every damn. Life. Damn. You, I, God is not like that. God is not like that. It is very clear from scripture that man is given a choice. And God in his sovereignty has chosen to give man a choice. 
he's still sovereign because he didn't have to give us a, but he did so when we are saved he sovereignly saves us by his grace because in his decision about salvation he decided I will give man a choice Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy continues to show us the results of false security in our lives. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.